you would, turn in your Bibles and uh, join me as we read from Acts chapter 20. We'll be looking at the first 16 verses this morning. Uh, If you're able, I'll ask that you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Uh, Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and, one, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Tros. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Tros, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten... He conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. They took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, Sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you be seated? Let's pray as we ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, you told us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Lord, we gratefully acknowledge that every word of God is true and perfect. So would you today revive our souls, enable us by your spirit to understand, to receive, to believe, and to practice your word. And through it, we ask... Would you bring resurrection power to bear upon our lives, that in all things we would see and exalt and love the Lord Jesus. For we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Uh, Before we get started, I'll just give you a a brief little hint that anytime you encounter words in the Bible, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and you're not entirely sure how to pronounce them, the trick is to just say it with confidence. Because if I don't know, you don't either. This is a passage about encouragement. Uh, We we all need encouragement, 
Sometimes we don't know how to give it. Sometimes we don't know uh, how to receive it. We find it hard to accept it from others. Sometimes we want to be discouraged, and it's difficult to receive help when we need it. Either way, each of us knows the experience of being worn down, of being weary, of being discouraged, uh, perhaps by a seemingly insurmountable problem in life, uh, perhaps by a pattern of life that we cannot seem to break, or perhaps a pattern in others uh, that seems to go unchanged. Sometimes we're discouraged by a lack of change in spite of our best and continued efforts to the contrary. Uh, in those moments, we, we need encouragement to press on, to not give up, to trust God's promises, to wait upon the Lord and to persevere. We're, uh, we're often tempted, I think, just as people in general, it's not a Christian problem, it's a human problem. We, we want the quick fix. We want the one-stop shop. We want the one thing that I can do that will change everything. Y'all have seen probably this commercial for prescription medication. I can't remember what, which prescription it is because there's so many. Uh, but there's a commercial for prescription medication that I think has to do with maybe diabetes or heart health. And the, the point of the commercial is shows all these people doing one thing and thinking that one thing will change everything. And so a guy gets down and he does one push-up and he gets up and he's done. Or a guy eats one blueberry for lunch and that's all the fruit he's going to eat. We often think, if I just do the one little thing, that'll solve all of my problems. But the reality is, we have to keep doing the one thing. We have to persevere. We have to endure uh, in doing the things that God has called us to do, whether that's push-ups, blueberries, prayer, reading the Word, whatever it may be. We're called to endure, and in order to do that, we need encouragement. Scripture itself highlights the need for spiritual encouragement among God's people. In the book of Acts alone, the word for encouragement, whether as a verb or a noun, uh, is used nearly 30 times throughout the entire book. The noun is used as a name for the Holy Spirit. He is called the comforter or the encourager. Scripture recognizes the importance and the need of encouragement. Back in January, we looked at a passage where Paul was returning through his, uh, the places where he had gone, strengthening and encouraging the churches, and we talked about the ministry of encouragement there. Uh, today, we're going to look at Paul's ministry of encouragement again, but this time looking at three things from Paul's example, and then seeking how we can apply them to our lives today. Uh, first, we're going to look at why he is encouraging the churches, namely because he's leaving, he's not going to see them again, and he wants them to be prepared to carry on in his absence. He's preparing them for his absence. So we're going to look at why he encourages we're going to look at the, the tools with which he encourages them, uh, namely the Word of God, the, the sacraments, and fellowship. Uh, we see these three things in this passage. And then finally, we're going to see in what manner Paul encourages the church, uh, namely through the pattern and the power of the resurrection of Jesus. So let's look first at why. Why is Paul encouraging the church? This, this is, uh, he's encouraging them because he's leaving and he wants to prepare them for his absence. This section in Acts is kind of a turning point. Paul, kind of like Jesus in the Gospels, Paul is setting his face toward Jerusalem. 
He is leaving Ephesus, and, and which is why we have all these travel details that are so interesting. He's leaving Ephesus. He wants to go to Jerusalem, and then he wants to go to Rome. And that's, that's where he ends up in the end of Acts. And so the, the book itself is kind of taking a turning point, is pointing us towards this final leg of Paul's journey that Luke records for us. He's leaving. He's going to be absent from these churches that he has helped to establish. Uh, he's not going to be with them any longer. And just like any, any good parent, Paul, as a spiritual father, is preparing these spiritual children to grow up into maturity, to, to live life, if you will, on their own without their spiritual father present. This is part of growing up, right? We have to learn how to, how to do the adult things without our parents often doing those things for us or, or assisting us along the way. Paul wants them to grow into maturity without, uh, if we can put it this way, without relying on his physical presence with them. And so in chapter 19, verse 21, Luke tells us he's leaving. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he wants to go to Rome. And here at the beginning of chapter 20, he leaves Ephesus in a hurry. If you remember last week, there was this massive riot in town, and, and only through a calm town clerk are things quieted down. But Paul gets the picture. He should not stay. This is not a safe place for him any longer. And so he's, he's hurrying out of Ephesus. He's leaving. But notice, before he leaves, he gathers the disciples together to encourage them to say farewell before he parts. This is the last time he will see them face to face. In the next section, which Jeff will preach on next week, uh, he does the same thing with the Ephesian elders. He gathers them to give this final farewell uh, before he leaves. And we see in the remainder of these first few verses that he does the same thing as he travels back through these regions where he's established these churches. Macedonia, so he's going to Philippi, he's going to Berea, he's going to Thessalonica, makes his way down to Greece, or it's called Achaia sometimes, stops in Athens and Corinth and Sincrea. He spends three months in Corinth, which is uh, most likely the place where he wrote the letter to the Romans. Then he makes his way back to Tros on his way to Jerusalem. Paul is leaving. And before he leaves, he's got last words that he wants to say to these churches, last things he wants to give them to encourage them to build them up in his absence. I think it's worth pointing out Paul's method of ministry here uh, is often at odds with a lot of the things that we're drawn to and a lot of things we see today, particularly with, with what we might call the cult of personality. So much of what happens in the world and even in kind of Christian subculture today revolves around personalities. Uh, and this has kind of been mass produced and, and disseminated through things like podcasts and the Internet where you might ask, you know, a young adult, um, who's, the, who's the preacher who's had the most impact on you? And it's very likely that they won't name the local pastor who has invested in them for most of their life, but they'll name a famous pastor who's got an amazing preaching ministry. He's on the radio, he's on the TV, he's got podcasts, and God uses all of that. It's not the point. But the point is that we are often attracted to the cult of personality. How many of us, how many people do you know who have been faithfully committed to a church, 
loved the pastor and the pastor had that kind of personality that was so attractive, so charismatic. People gathered around him and then when things didn't go right and he left the church, guess what happens? Lots of people leave with him. It, it, it makes you wonder sometimes, not to lay blame or anything if that's been your situation, but it does, I think it should give us pause to consider where do, who is it that we follow? Paul was, I think, very careful, very diligent in preparing these churches to exist, to continue, to grow, not around himself. Only one person can sustain faith. Only one is worthy of that kind of devotion. And it's not Paul. It's not any other normal human. It's Jesus. And as Paul is leaving, he's encouraging them. You've received Christ Jesus as Lord. Continue in him. He's leaving. He wants to prepare them for his absence. And he is careful, I think, to say, you don't really need Paul. You need Jesus. Continue to follow Jesus. I think after that, he sets a pattern for our sustaining Christian life as well. As we look not only at why he encourages them, but with what he encourages them, the means by which he encourages them uh, are quite ordinary. Notice uh, as we look at point two, the word fellowship and sacraments, or the word sacraments and fellowship. Notice just uh, how we see these things in this passage, how Paul encourages them with the word. Notice verse 2 of chapter 20. He's left Ephesus after encouraging them. He goes into Macedonia, and it says that when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now, if we were to translate this literally, it would say when he had spoken many words to them, which I think is kind of an appropriate way to talk about preaching. Uh, many words, lots of words. Later, we're going to see Paul using lots of words over a long period of time. Somebody dies, they come back, and what does Paul do at the end of it? He speaks more many words. Paul is preaching to them. That, that seemed funnier in my head than it, when it came out just now. Um, don't y'all think while you're sitting through a sermon sometimes, many words, fewer words. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but here, Paul is encouraging them with the word. He is ministering the word of God to them. This, is, this seems so ordinary, right? Uh, he wants them to be committed to the word of God's grace. It, it's very similar to what we see in the beginning of Acts. You have Pentecost, this extraordinary event in God's redemptive history. He pours out his Holy Spirit. There's tongues of fire upon the disciples as they gather and and they attest to the power of the resurrection as they speak in the languages of those who had gathered there. And Peter preaches this simple but amazing sermon. And 3,000 are gathered in on the day of Pentecost, repenting and believing. It's extraordinary. And then right after that, Luke tells us what they do. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. It's ordinary. It's, it's the ordinary way in which the Christian life is sustained. We don't always have to be looking for the next big thing. We don't always have to be looking for the next mountaintop experience. Sometimes God works most and in the most amazing ways through those ordinary means of the Word of God, 
ministering to our hearts, exposing our sin, drawing us to Jesus, and building us up as we walk by faith and obedience. He ministers the word of God to them. Not only do we see the word of God, but we see fellowship. We see fellowship. Now, where do we see this? Uh, you see it in a few places, at least in verse 4, Paul names names, some of them funny names. Uh, but Paul names names, uh, Luke names names, rather, of those who were gathered with Paul on this part of his journey. And if you read carefully, kind of from this part to the end of the book of Acts, there's lots more names. Almost ev everywhere Paul ends up going on this last leg of his journey, there's people, there's, there's churches. Some of them are named, some of them are not named, but they're all showing up at these different places to minister to Paul, to be encouraged by Paul, to meet him, to greet him, whatever the case may be. There's people. And, and Luke is highlighting for us the connectedness of the church. There's no, uh, you might say, no Lone Ranger Christianity. No, no Christian is called, ordinarily, to live the Christian life in isolation from other believers. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity. Paul was not a maverick. He wasn't out there on his own. He's gathering all of these people around him as he serves the church. And so we see fellowship providing this source of encouragement for the church. There's another reason why these, these men are named here in verse 4. We know from Paul's letters to the Romans and to the Corinthian church that part of what he was doing was gathering an offering of relief for the church in Jerusalem from the Gentile churches as a way of showing Jews, Gentiles, all one church. We share in one another's gifts. We share in one another's material possessions. We're all one in Christ and as the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering in various ways, it was extremely important to Paul that those Christians knew they had fellowship with other Christians in Europe and in Asia who were giving of their own goods to support the Christians in Jerusalem. And so we see fellowship as they're gathering together, taking up this offering, and these guys are probably representing the churches in those towns that are named here as they go with Paul back to Jerusalem to carry this gift to the churches in Jerusalem for relief. We see the word of God preaching many words. We see fellowship, the connectedness of the church. We see the sacraments as well. Notice as uh, Paul is in Tros where he stays for about a week after Passover, uh, he gathers with the disciples, with the church there on the first day of the week. And notice how Luke describes their gathering in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gather together to break bread. And then again in verse 11, Paul broke bread and ate. Now, people are divided on this. Is Paul, are they just gathering for a meal, kind of like our covered dish dinner? Uh, or is this the Lord's Supper? And the answer is yes, uh, it was both. This was the pattern of the early church that they, when they gathered, it didn't, probably didn't look like what we're doing. Uh, they, they didn't have the liberty of a day off of work, and so they were, they were working hard uh, on this first day of the week, and then they gathered when they could. They gathered in the evening in somebody's home, and they would share this meal together. There would be singing of songs and, and reading of the word and exhortation, as we see Paul doing here. And as part of that meal... 
they would remember Jesus. They would remember his body broken for them. They would remember his blood shed for them. They would share a normal meal, and then at the end of that meal, they would share bread and and wine in remembrance of what the Lord Jesus had done for them. It's It's the Lord's Supper. They're being encouraged through the word, through gathering together, and through remembering in the Lord's Supper communion with Christ and all that Jesus had done for them. They are encouraged through the sacraments, the breaking of bread. So we see not only why Paul encourages them, he's leaving, he wants them to continue uh, in faith. We see with what tools he encourages them, the word, fellowship, and sacraments. And then finally, we see the power and the pattern uh, as the, of the resurrection as the manner in which Paul encourages the church. Now, where do we see this? Uh, we see this in, in two ways. Uh, first, notice the pattern of the resurrection and how it shapes the life of the church. Verse 7, on the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, prolonged his speech until midnight. God wastes no words, and so all of the Bible is worth pausing to to think about, but these are words uh, that just show up without any extra comment, but they are highly significant. Luke tells us that the early church patterned their gathering around the resurrection because they gathered on the first day of the week. This is significant because when did the Jews gather for worship? Many, many Christians obviously were Jewish. They gathered on the last day of the week. They gathered on the Jewish Sabbath on, on Saturday. And that was highly significant and very important for them. It was a sacred day. And here you have Luke just tells us without any extra explanation, without any extra comment, that when they gathered, it's on the first day of the week. Now, why would they do that? Why would they not be gathering uh, on Saturday as their normal day of gathering? This is uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Why didn't they continue that pattern? Luke doesn't tell us, uh, but I think it's reasonable to, to uh, say, to interpret this, that they gathered on the first day of the week because that was when Jesus rose from the dead. That was when everything changed, that the resurrection of Jesus is so life-altering. The, the life of heaven coming into this world through the resurrection of Jesus now shapes fundamentally the way the church lives and gathers so that they gather now on the first day of the week. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, confirms this pattern when he is reminding them to take up the offering that we talked about earlier. He says, when you gather on the first day of the week, don't forget to take up this offering. The first day of the week has significance throughout the Bible all of it kind of reaching a high point in the resurrection. God brings light on the first day of creation. Let there be light, and there was light. The first day of the week is when Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, establishing the church in the power of the Spirit of the risen Christ. Of course, Jesus is raised from the dead on the first day of the week. So you have light at creation life at resurrection, life at Pentecost. And then we get a hint of this in the book of Revelation at the end when John the apostle is receiving this apocalyptic vision 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What's he, what's he talking about? He's talking about the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the day of the Spirit. It's appropriate to call it the Lord's Day, and it's appropriate to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The, church, the life of the church is patterned around the resurrection of Jesus. It's like a weekly anniversary, which I know doesn't make any sense, but just go with it. It's a weekly reminder. Christ is alive. Jesus is risen. You don't have to wait till. Um, we celebrate Easter to remember that Jesus is risen. They gathered on the first day of the week, every week, to celebrate his resurrection from the dead, as do we even now. So we see the pattern of the resurrection shaping the life of the church as they gather to be encouraged and to encourage one another. But we also see the power of the resurrection shaping the life of the church. And so we come at last to this strange story in this chapter, Eutychus. Uh, this is just an odd story, and it's kind of funny. Uh, it's, it's only funny because he came back to life. It wouldn't be funny if, he just, if Luke just said he died. Uh, but he comes back, so we can, we can enjoy the humor of this story. This is an odd story. Luke is giving us travel plans, how Paul is leaving Ephesus and making his way to Jerusalem, then to Rome, and he stops in Troas for seven days. And, and as they're gathering on this first day of the week, Paul's preaching uh, you can imagine they're gathered in this upper room in the evening. It's like a third-story uh, house and uh, right in the middle of town. And they've been working all day, so everybody's probably kind of tired. You've got these lamps burning in the, in the room, and many of you have probably been in that type of setting. It can make you a little bit drowsy. And Paul's preaching, and he's on a roll. He's got a lot to say. He's just finished writing probably his letter to the Romans. That's 16 chapters. He might have been kind of testing it out on this congregation in Troas. Let me go through these things that I wrote to the congregation in Rome. Let me tell you what I've learned in this process. Let me encourage you. And he's loving every bit of it. And the congregation, I, I believe, is, is soaking it up. And he continues to talk, and he continues to talk. And I don't think Luke is making fun of him for talking a long time. He's just telling us he talked for a long time. And old Eutychus, this young guy, he's probably a servant of some type, He's been working hard, leans into the windowsill or on the window frame, maybe scoots up onto the windowsill after a little while. And uh, The way Luke describes it is there's kind of this progress into sleep. And he starts drifting off, being uh, you know, overpowered by a force stronger than him. Are some of you feeling that right now? I don't uh, You have to make that joke whenever you preach on this passage. Um, people fall asleep in church, it happens. But here Eutychus is, he drifts. The power of sleep carries him down, and he is in a deep sleep, and all of a sudden, out the window he falls uh, from this third-story window to the ground, dead. Paul goes down, uh, bends over him, takes him in his arms, and his life comes back to him. He's dead. He, he died. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's a miracle. It'd be a miracle even if he didn't die, because how do you fall from a third-story window in the dead of sleep and not die. It's a miracle. He's dead, and Paul brings him back to life. Why in the world is this story here? It's so strange. I, mean, I think at the very least we can say it's here because it happened, and, and Luke's telling us something that happened, but there's lots of things that happened that Luke doesn't tell us about. 
So why does he tell us about this incident with Eutychus? Part of what Luke is communicating to us is the power of the resurrection still at work in the life of the church. Eutychus dies, he rises again from the dead. It's, it's an example of Jesus' resurrection power coming to bear in the life of the church. It demonstrates to us the centrality of the resurrection and the life of Christians and that Jesus is still at work by that same power with which he was raised from the dead. Now, here's the, here's the thing for us. None of you are sitting in a window on the third story of, we don't even have a third story, so it's impossible uh, for, for this thing to be repeated. And yet it's still applicable because part of what Luke is reminding us in this passage is this is the normal way Jesus works in the life of his people. You die to sin and you live to God by the power of his resurrection. Just consider for a moment your own experience of coming to Christ, if you're a Christian, of, of living life in Christ as a believer. The New Testament gives us one word to describe what it's like to grow in Christ, that, what that process is. Uh, maybe two words, but the main word is resurrection, because what does that pro- progress, what does that process look like? It looks like what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and die daily. It looks like what Paul says, to consider ourselves in Christ dead to sin and alive to God, and therefore to put to death sin in our bodies, in our lives, that we might live to God. This is the pattern for the life of the Christian, that we die and we rise over and over and over again, we experience the power of Jesus' resurrection in our lives as we follow him. It's his life-giving power at work in us today. Think about how encouraging it would be if we were able to see those little mini-resurrections at work in our own lives to see your anger being put to death and in its place there being mercy towards others, to see the way we use our tongues, cutting other people down or asserting ourselves in our own agenda, to see that dying and to see in its place there rising words that build up, words that exalt God and encourage one another. How encouraging would it be if you began to see progress and success in the sins that you struggle with in your own heart, whatever they may be? Envy, coveting, lust, anger, whatever the case may be for you, the promise of the gospel is that the power with which God raised Jesus from the dead, he brought life out of death. That's power. And it's that same power that is at work in us today. Uh, Jesus has overcome sin in his own dying and in his rising again from the dead. And by the power of his spirit, he's continuing to do that, to, to flesh out the once accomplished work that he has done in his death and his resurrection, unique 
in its power, but he's bringing that power into your experience as you walk by faith. How many of you feel like there are just certain parts of life that will never change for me? There are certain things that are difficult for me that I will never overcome. Perhaps that's the case. Uh, Many people struggle with things until they go home to be with Jesus. And we'll always have the presence of indwelling sin in our lives. You'll never be perfect before you see Jesus. That's true. But shouldn't we hope for and in some measure expect that that kind of power, bringing life out of death, that that kind of power can work in us in ways that we don't expect, ways that we often even doubt so that even a young man falling from a windowsill dying comes back? Shouldn't we look for and expect and hope for the power of Jesus to be at work in our lives, his resurrection power at work in us? I want to encourage you to look for that in your own lives, um, to be thankful, to see the glimmers of Jesus' power at work in you because it's easy to get discouraged. But take heart, Jesus is at work in you. He's bringing his life Uh, to bear in your life. So look for it and find encouragement in it and look for it in others. How, How many of us struggle to say to one another, I see Jesus at work in you. I see Jesus changing you. Do we know one another and are we letting ourselves be known well enough to have those kinds of conversations where we can really encourage one another? Jesus is changing you. I see it. Keep on keeping on. Don't give up, but continue to hold fast to Jesus. Jesus is at work. Let us encourage one another by helping each other grow and acknowledging that growth when we see it in each other's lives. Paul ended this leg of his trip focusing on encouragement, traveling through these regions, ministering the word of God, Encouraging fellowship, remembering Jesus as they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. And Luke reminds us that the power of Jesus is still at work today in our lives. Bringing life out of death. Bringing righteousness out of darkness. Bringing us into the light of his promises. May we believe that and may we find encouragement in it as well.